Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Michael, John, are you ever interested or curious as to which shows of yours get licensed the most? Like, are you in on that or do you just kind of? No, I don't. I really don't. I know a lot of people do follow that. And I I suppose that's a sign of good business acumen, but I never possessed that. So, uh, no, I don't really (laughs) um, pay much attention to it. I would guess that See What I Want to See has to be one of, I don't know, one of the top ones, though, like maybe top four, because I feel like it's a perfect piece. There's only five actors, first of all. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a chamber piece. And yes, it, uh, it's very ideal for the, the, the universities and colleges. And there's been several very fine productions of, uh, of them done one at UCLA. And Travis, that's how you first did it, right? Was in, yeah. at UCLA? Yeah, that was my freshman year, my first quarter of college. And Your first I, quarter of college, you did one of Michael John shows. Yeah. That is I, that is welcome to the musical insane. theater world. <laughs> yes, it is. It really, really, <laughs> it truly was. And I should not have even really been there because I didn't know many people, you know, like going in freshman year, obviously. But our director was a sophomore at the time, Hunter Bird, great, good friend of mine. Yes. Still. And he had seen me at some open mic night thing and was like, hey, can you come audition for this? And I did, and it, it turned out to be one of the best experiences of my life still. That's so cool. Yeah. I remember the UCLA production very well. It was very well, it was very beautifully done. Great singers in it. Uh, but I do remember it's quite notorious in the Michael John Lacusa oeuvre of that production because it was afterwards I went to, as I normally do, I went backstage to uh, congratulate the orchestra and meet the orchestra, which I always do, and talk to the music uh-huh. director. And, uh, and I pulled the music director aside <laughs> And I said, you know, the name of the show is See What I Want to See, Not Play What You Want to Play. Because <laughs> <gasps> <laughs> his temples were all over the place. And I didn't know what, I mean, I was sitting there listening to it and I'm going, didn't you listen to the cast album? There's a cast <laughs> album out there. It's great documentation. Uh, you know what I mean? It's perfectly, you know, just listen to the cast album if you had any questions about Tempe. Clearly <laughs> the music director had not done it. <laughs> so it's just. Play what I want to play. You play what I want to play. It's not that. See what I want to <laughs> see. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite shows in musical theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we're talking about See What I Want to See. And to join me in this conversation is Mr. Travis Leland. 
one of my friends from Los Angeles. Travis, I think I first saw you in Damn Yankees. Oh, yeah. And I remember sitting there going, oh, I guess Joe Hardy's my favorite part of Damn Yankees. (laughs) You were really fantastic. Oh, thank you. But uh, then we got started talking, and we both have a love of See What I Want to See. And so I asked if you would be willing to do an episode of the podcast all about this show. And you were like, absolutely. By the way, I know Michael John Lacusa from him coming to see the show at UCLA. Do you want me to reach out to him? And I fangirled and fainted. And then I woke up and said, (laughs) absolutely. And he did. And so now I get to introduce, I believe, the only person I know who competed against himself at the Tony Awards in two separate categories in the same year. It's Michael John Lacusa, everyone. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Happy to be here. I'm so grateful that you are both here to to talk about this special show and this really interesting canon of musical theater that you have brought to the art form. I'm promise I'm not trying to blow smoke up your butt, but like <laughs> When when most people say, not you know, like that good, thing, not a very good metaphor these days. Smoke. It's uh, oh, okay, oh poor California. I'm thinking of poor You're Travis so right. and you yourself, even there. It's, like, <laughs> it's no. a very that's a very good. No point. smoke, please. But, <laughs> no smoke. No smoke. But I feel like one of the famous questions that always gets tossed around among musical theater lovers is, if you could go back in time and see one show, what would it be? And people usually say Merman and Gypsy or the original cast of Dream girls or something like that i'm the nerd who's like chronicle of a death foretold (laughs) because i've always been really fascinated by your stuff my relationship to your canon of work isn't so much that i listen to it once and it gets stuck in my head it's that i listen to it multiple times and then it gets like stuck to my soul and i know that that sounds exaggerated and like dramatic but i'm i'm a musical theater boy so i am you know dramatic But, (laughs) but i i do think that it has a lot to do with what you bring to a show rhythmically. A lot of your music has these really interesting primal beats. Can you talk about that? Because that is what ends up creating the mood for me every single time. I think it's because I didn't start off learning to play music on the piano, but I started off as percussionist and uh, began uh, playing drums at a very early age. And I think that I've always been you know, fascinated with rhythm and uh, and, and percussion. Uh, and that might be one of the reasons too. But in terms of like, I, I guess in terms of just drama, you know, the first thing I kind of deal with when I'm writing a song for a character is uh, what's their heartbeat? You know, what's the heartbeat? Is it going to be bum, 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 or, or you know, fast beat, you know, whatever, you know, what's the emotional state of uh, the, the person's heart? And uh, I also think too, Depending on where the piece is set, too, is always intriguing to me. I mean, um, much of our music, uh, world music, is very percussion and uh, very rhythm-oriented. And so there's a lot to explore, and I love learning new um, percussion instruments, learning new rhythms, and exploring that, and you know, stretching uh, myself in, in terms of uh, the education of, of that. I don't know if that answers the question or not, but it... Uh, Absolutely. You know, it's I one love of those that. things. Um, I, I, I think a lot of my shows begin with... Percussion. I think a lot of my shows start with some percussion, something or another going on. Uh, uh, maybe I'm just lazy and repeating myself or something. I'm not sure. No, no. Or, you know, but it seems to be something that I just something I'm, I gravitate toward. 
the percussion is something you feel. And uh, I mean, we'll jump into this oh, more yes. detail, but the opening to see what I want to see is totally, I mean, you get the like the flute, but then it goes into the dun 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 Everybody, you feel it. You're instantly in this world, right? In the rhythms of one, two, and three. Yes. And then it just repeats itself over and over again in the set of threes because it's three stories that we're going to tell that evening. What? There you go. There you go. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so excited. So, <laughs> do you do you find those beats first and then you're like, "Oh, I guess I just wrote a song in 7/8 or some crazy time signature?" <laughs> uh, yeah. But I think, you know, it, it's a matter of um I, I don't find myself going, "This I must write something in 7/8." You know, I don't think that. I feel way. like Lloyd Webber does that. <laughs> you know. Well, he 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 very well might uh because uh, you know, he's well, he's very well-educated and he's a very fine, 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 fine composer. Uh, and so, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. And I think he, and there are, there are magical, uh, there's an alchemy to uh, rhythm c- compound or otherwise uh, that uh, evokes certain things, you know, agitation or uh, sex. Uh, five, four, for me, when I write in five, four, I'm always having sex to it on the stage or something or off stage, <laughs> if you will. So it's like, <laughs> you know, but seven, eight doesn't do it for me. You know what I mean? Seven, eight doesn't turn me on. <laughs> it's all about the five, four people. Yeah. It's too erratic. Seven, eight. It's yeah. Seven, like, eight. Yeah. It's like, but five, four is da, 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 bum, bum, everything's on, dum, ba, dum, ba, dum, but it's sexy, you know? <laughs> I think that See What I Want to See is a, a great jumping in point for your work if people don't know a lot of your musicals. And the reason I say so is because I love that it's smallish, so it's not trying to be a huge Broadway spectacle-type musical. And yet it's dealing with some of the biggest themes you could ever try to write a musical about. The idea of what is truth what is, is true? objective truth even possible to comprehend <laughs> and if it is does it even matter i mean truly. here we are i was thinking about this last night i just re-listened to the whole you know soundtrack and here we are in this world now where facts are being debated and mm-hmm. truth is so hard to find because there's so much noise so i think i think your show is even more relevant now than it was in 2000 and what was it 2003 when it came out i think it was 2003 yeah no i think it was later than that it was yeah. the same no 2005 because like i did no, it was 2005 because i did bernardo alba the same year same season and that happened in 2006 so we did okay. see what i want to see and then i opened bernardo alba like see what i want to see was done at the public and then later that season i did uh bernardo alba at lincoln center so i had two musicals that year off broadway nice. that's uh, crazy um, how do you how does know, that happen is that I just like I don't know. It's my whole life has been that. It's yeah. been since I first was doing things in New York. I mean, my first major productions were in the same season: first Lady Suite at the Public, and then Hello uh-huh. Again at Lincoln Center. And then it, it it's always seemed to happen that way. And sometimes just like doing a like doing a off Broadway piece, and then doing an opera at the, in the same year. So it's just, I don't know how it works out that way. It's not a matter of writing them at the same time because musicals take forever to get done sometimes or a very short time period. So it depends on what level they're at. And if they're both ready to go, that's great. I just have to show up and, you know, do what I need to do in the rehearsals there. 
and uh, as long as I'm not do what you need to do, see what you need to see. (laughs) Right, exactly. Play Play what you you want to play. play. (laughs) You know, going back a little bit though, you know, you were mentioning about the show and uh, the the matter of truth and all, but I have to just say that it's really um, uh, because of the source material that I found uh, based on Okutagawa's short story, the great Japanese short story writer Okutagawa. His stories were uh, written in a very provocative time in Japan in the early 20s, uh, 1920s, and uh, he was looking at his country, and um, which was going through a radical change. I mean, you are a musical theater bus, so you know probably some of the history through Pacific Overtures, for instance, you know, the radical change that was happening to that country. And he was writing a, a lot about what is truth, what is truth is totally subjective, that one person who sees you know, the orange roll down the street, another person saw it roll up the street. And it all depends Mm -hmm. on where you're looking at and what you want from that experience. And which is very, very profound and and very deep when you when you consider it, and quite poetic too, as uh, a very uh, Japanese uh, uh, aesthetic too. Whenever I listen to the show, I'm always taken back to this time when I was serving on jury duty <laughs> uh, in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it was it was a murder case. It was like a a, a murder Ooh. case surrounding Ooh. gang violence, and we ended up convicting the the defendant of murder. And the thing that they kept telling us was that it doesn't have to be beyond a shadow of a doubt, right? That's not the the burden of proof in America. And so based on those rules, we convicted him. But I still think about that guy and I'm like, I can't tell you if 100% or not he killed somebody. I really don't know. But like, that's the best that I could do. That's the best that I could come up with was follow through with the system that's in place. Mm, that's tough because a lot of people are in jail because of circumstantial evidence. And that's, exactly, you know, exactly. And that's, I mean, the burden of proof, you know, I mean, that's that's the hard thing to uh, to figure out in our judicial system. That's why so many innocent people have wound up in prison or, or because of racial bias and, uh, and politics. So For it's sure. something that, I, I mean, in our country, yes, uh, the, and particularly currently, the, the idea of what what is truth and what is not truth. I mean, geez, I mean, I've never seen it more divided in my lifetime. And I go back to Nixon days and, you know, and I thought that was pretty gruesome as a kid, you know, but this that we're going through now is an unspeakable horror and uh, irrevocable damage, I think, to to uh, uh, our constitution. Maybe that's what we need to do. Is, but I wish it weren't so... Um, so destructive in terms of like dividing us. I wish that we, you know, and if we can't come to to agree on what the truth is, maybe we can find some way to uh, find a way to learn together what it could be. Well, isn't it interesting that we sometimes fixate on specific truths and then in doing so completely forget about even a higher or greater truth in the process, you know, that we choose hate because we disagree on this thing when actually, love and and connection is even the greater mm-hmm. truth and and i guess it's it's within our experience to figure out which is more important and what deserves the attention when but i think that's why i love the story the dragon kutagawa's story the dragon which forms the basis of a, what's the second act of see what i want to see which is called what's it called the, the dragon I think it's called, glory, no, day. Uh, glory, glory day yeah and uh glory day. the name of my own shows um uh yeah glory day <laughs> you've written a lot <laughs> of them yeah, uh, uh, I guess so. <laughs> or I'm old. Uh, how about that? Uh, oh, no. I don't remember things. 
Yeah, Glory Day is based on the dragon. And I loved the dragon so much because uh, with the priest, who's the central character in it all, who falls out of his faith and decides that belief in a higher being is totally bogus and fake and, you know, what a lie of how he's been living his whole life. He decides to play a trick by announcing that um, a dragon's going to rise from, you know, the park. And fortunately, what happens is that people actually believe it. And in, in my version of it all, I, I switched to America, present-day America, and I have a, a disgruntled priest who, I don't name it specifically, but it seems as though he's gone through 9-11 and loses his faith in mankind and um, and has a crisis of faith. And he decides, I'm going to play a trick on people, and he goes to Central Park and he nails up the thing saying, a Christ is going to come out of the, the big pond. And, uh, and people believe it because they're so hungry and desperate for the miracle, for some salvation, for some sort of hope, some sort of peace, uh, some sort of Christ, if you will, which is the, uh, a beautiful word in many ways, if you use it right, and uh, don't damn hurt people with it. People need that, he discovers. And at the moment when this thing is supposed to happen, a huge hurricane blows through the Central Park, and people awfully, no one sees the miracle, that happens. No one sees Christ rise from the pond except for the priest. And that's the, that's based on what happens in the dragon, the original story, too, where the, only the priest sees the dragon and no one else does. So that beautiful metaphor of you, you played a joke and you also you are the recipient of a, you were the one who needed it the most, the miracle. Right. And uh, I think that that's something, too, that I think is quite profound and beautiful too that it's only those who really need the miracle will receive that gift and if you're open enough to it you know and you never know where it's going to come from either those miracles and we all that's why you have to keep the faith you know yeah, things will get sure. better and we have to work hard for that to make them better we just can't let god take care of things were you in new york during 9-11 yes as a matter of fact i was it was again very very frightening and scary and uh, traumatic did it know? change anything for you as a composer because I, I look at what was happening Broadway pre nine eleven, and we were we were kind of willing to go down some pretty dark territory. Your show Marie Christine and and the Wild mm-hmm. Party both were on Broadway pre nine eleven, and then post nine eleven, it's Mamma Mia, it's Thoroughly Modern Millie. It really does seem like we went to a more kind of escapist place. Although all of those shows have themes uh, that are important to explore as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but did you feel any sort of shift in yourself as an artist because of that? At the time, no, uh, because uh, I had to finish a, a, a show that I was writing for uh, that was going to be produced in Japan. And so, mm-hmm. and in fact, on 9-11, I was working at the piano and gotten a call from working on one of the one of the songs from the show that was going to premiere in Japan and got a phone call from my brother who said, go turn on the TV. Um, you know, I didn't write for another three days for obvious reasons, or five days, I think it was, just because, of, like all of us, you just watched uh, over and over again. But at some point, you have to pick yourself up and you say, okay, now i got to move forward here. And I think that that is where craftspersonship always wins the day in some cases. It's one thing to be artistic and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, gifted, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but it's another thing to be a craftsperson because you can always rely on your craft. 
to go back right. to and help you get you through um, certain things and, and terrible calamities like 9-11 or what we're living through today, COVID and the fires and Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I re- you know, have to rely on my craft some days to get me to the fucking piano, get me to my notepad, to whatever I say, just put down something, you know what I mean? And then worry about being artistic later and creative later. Just get to that damn piano and pound something out. Something will come out, you know, and that's why I teach my students that, you know, I saying, you know, it's one thing to be an artist and quite another thing to be a craftsperson. You must be both to have a career and, and to make your work you know, come alive and be truthful. Yes, yes, yes. I feel like Yoda sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm, looking, at his, I'm looking at myself and I'm going, God, you look like Yoda. I'm so <laughs> Wrinkle old mess, oh you know. I do think it's important though, it, in my life, I've noticed that if you're feeling inspired, act on it because there will be days where you have to be the craftsman and edit, 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 sit down at the desk, do the adulting. But if you are feeling the inspiration, catch it while it's there i always say this that the, the renaissance i think is highly overrated <laughs> because because <laughs> i like i like medieval thought in some ways because in the medieval ages they didn't believe that the genie or the genius resided within oneself that the genies were in the walls and uh, would, if they could if they were flying around and you were aware of it you could grab the genie by the tail and capture Interesting. It, and capture genius. The Renaissance kind of switched that up by saying genius resides within us. And I, I go, maybe it's both ways, but you, cause you have to be open <laughs> to the world and what's happening around you. Cause the genius is out there, not always within you. The genius is outside of yourself. And if you're not paying attention and being attuned to what's happening around you, you know, you miss things and you miss the chance to grab that genie by the tail. Beautiful. Yoda says. <laughs> Yoda says Yoda. Yoda. Thank you, Yoda, Master Yoda. <laughs> Travis, you are, are you of Lebanese descent? I am, yes. It's such a, such a Lebanese name. Travis Leland. That, you know, from right, the Highlands. No. You know, like... <laughs> well, that's funny, too, actually. My, Leland is not my birth name. Uh, my oh, really? father, that's my father's last name. He was Scottish-Irish, um, and he was adopted. Uh, so that was not even his last name. Uh, my 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 mother is the Lebanese one, and her last her maiden name was Abumrad. Oh, that which is very very Lebanese. Yeah. Do you have people back there, Travis? Do you have family back there? I do. I have a couple of family members there, and actually a couple that I've never met before because they've mm. never come to America, and I have not been there. Um, but everyone is fine after the Beirut explosion. Um, it's just oh, so good. sad yeah. over there. You know, and my sister-in-law is, is, is part Lebanese too, and it's just a beautiful, mm. beautiful, beautiful culture. And um, it's just, again, talk about world crises, you know. They were having a hard time before that explosion. And in a lot of ways, a lot of people were saying that was sort of the ripping the Band-Aid off of the problems going on in that country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whatever actually happened in terms of how that, you know, in, t- in terms of how it exploded a lot of people were hurt, a lot of people died, and a lot of buildings and businesses were destroyed. And it sort of was like a wake-up call. And then, I don't know if you were following along, but a lot of the government officials stepped down, resigned shortly thereafter. Mm-hmm. Right. And they're sort of like restructuring their whole government and their whole people. So, you know, it's it's awful. It's terrible. It's really sad. But sometimes after big things like that, you see a lot of progress and you see things start to change. Much like what we've dealt with with uh, George Floyd, and Breonna mm-hmm. Taylor, right? Socially, culturally, we are dealing with a lot of that, having to reassess 
what we stand by, what we do, <laughs> who, the people in charge, unchecked power and things like that. So for sure. But yes, but yes, I'm Lebanese. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what made me think of it was with a show that has 9-11 roots, was there anything that you went through in your childhood or was there anything that you brought to your experience in this show that was tied to your 9-11 experiences as someone whose mom oh, is Lebanese yeah, and of Middle Eastern descent? I mean, yeah. I definitely was, you know, called a terrorist occasionally. And, and whether it was like some kind of a soft joke or something sure. like that, you know. Sure. Also, I'm fairly white passing, you know, complexion wise. So, so I don't think a lot of people look at me instantly and say, oh, you're Middle Eastern. Grew up Catholic, so grew up in the Catholic Church. I wasn't... Um, super tied to religion. But yeah, I, I I wouldn't say there was anything really particular about see what I want to see that hit me as a Middle Eastern man. You know, I played the thief and the reporter. So in the second oh, act, cool. I got to sing the beautiful, beautiful song, Curiosity. And you, and sing, just... you sing it so beautifully. I remember it. <laughs> Thank you. I, remember, I, Thank I told you. you that. I told you that afterwards. I thought it was one of the most beautifully yeah. performed versions of the song I'd ever heard. Um, it's one of my favorite songs, you know, of course, from the show. I love, yeah. love, love, love that song. It's so impactful. And, I, you know, I've, uh, sidebar, I have attempted to bring that song into audition rooms. Nobody can play it. Nobody <laughs> can play it. <laughs> you know what? It's really like, not hard. I, you know, I don't know what, back when I was a kid, you know, you had to learn how to play Sondheim. Otherwise, you know. Yeah, that's right. really hard stuff too. But you had a sight back in my day. We had a sometimes even sight read and sight oh. transpose uh, Steve's yeah. work. Oh my god! As, as an no. Nowadays, these a lot of these accompanists can't do anything. There are people that can play it though. You just have to find them. But did you, you had actors you know, come up to you and be like this, but in D flat, and mm-hmm. then you had to transpose it? Yes, oh absolutely. absolutely. That would be such a faux pas yeah. nowadays. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, my God. You can imagine these accompanists. Oh, no, I can't do that. Um, you kids. <laughs> Absolutely not. You kids. <laughs> you kids today. <laughs> All right, Yoda. All right, Yoda. <laughs> you actors now, you young actors now. You know, it's funny now. Back in my day, we had we didn't have finale program. We had to do things by hand. So things need to be transposed in the moment. We had to go home, back home that night after rehearsals and do the whole transposition. It's so like if you're writing. Light your candle piece. and exactly, and you'd be up all night and writing that tra- that 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 <laughs> transit. Nowadays, they want you to have the music already. You have to make MP3s. This is even before you even go into rehearsal. MP3s with their solo lines and da 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 da. So all this technology has made my life much more difficult than it was back in the old timey <laughs> days. So I actually want to go back to the old timey days where I had to write out things because you know there was no you know having to make stupid Dropbox files. The Dropbox. <laughs> You know, that's why I went, I think I'm going to do one person shows, you know, because it's too much work. (laughs) Well, also, we have less time to rehearse, though, too. All of the shows I've done prior to COVID, I had a two week rehearsal period. Like that, there's no way I could yeah. I could learn your score in in a week and a half. Are you kidding me? Oh no no no! You can learn my score in three days. Now memorizing okay. it, I don't know, but I'm know. ready. Right. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Um. Now, Michael John, you teach at NYU, right? Yes. Uh-huh. And Travis, obviously, UCLA is how he found see what I want to see. I wanted to talk briefly about the place of higher education in terms of the future of musical theater and I guess just creating art in general 
because I know that you have been vocal about your frustration in trying to figure out how to produce works, how to make them not necessarily commercially successful, but a financially viable endeavor. So where does higher education fall in there? I have a degree in musical theater. So does Travis. And while I'm incredibly grateful for it, I'm not always totally sure it's much more than a racket. (laughs) Oh, gosh. You know, uh, I didn't go to college. You know, I graduated from high school and just moved to the city and began playing piano and making money. And that was sort of my way of learning. Of course, things like say we're different than we didn't have cell phones and, and internet. So you, you, uh, Dropbox. you, you don't have any of that shit. And, uh, we would go and <laughs> meet people and it was through learn. And that's how I learned, you know, by talking to the great writers that were there I and mean, they were, everybody was accessible back then, you know, you could pick up the what we had back then with something called the Yellow Pages, and you would go and you go in the Yellow Pages, and it said Hal Prince, and you call Hal Prince, and then have a meeting with Hal Prince. You know, so that that often happened back then. Um, I find uh, the educational system is a little crowded. You know what I mean? I wish there was room for more one-on-one as opposed to classes of thirty-two or thirty-seven trying to vie for things. I think that that's very, very tough. I've taught uh, a, a number of times at uh, certain schools. Um, I did a, a tenure at uh, Pace University, for instance, working with students there. I was a resident uh, artist there. I loved every single second of it. I, I tell you, I loved every single second of it all. And I loved the attention that the students got at that university. I thought it was, and the, and the kids, the talent level was breathtaking it would take my breath away every time i'd go to one of the classes and and see what they were working on and i put together a show for them based on all my uh trunk songs i called it michael john's dead babies and it was just it it, 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 the kids were brilliant (laughs) that's a good tricky title huh michael john's dead babies that one's really gonna bring in the crowd it did it did but but those those kids and how they were schooled and how they um learned uh, to be great interpreters of song and and uh, and dancers as well i was deeply impressed with, with that program and so there's that i've also been seen other programs that were not that and uh and a lot of political bullshit and a lot of sick i think sick political bullshit went on for a lot of students and cost them a lot of money there's there's there can be that and i think you just it's a matter of the look at the draw sometimes right i mean education is can be that you know um do you need a college education of course you if you have the opportunity to go to school absolutely go to school you'll need that degree you'll need to have it not just for your major but for maybe discovering something else and also to the networking potential of all that is is deeply deeply uh, essential to having a career in this business to network uh and when you which is a, a master's in musical theater writing we have uh, so many applicants for that program. I mean, I'm wondering who the hell wants to go up, grow up and write musicals. Jeez, Louise, you know, I mean, it's just like the stupidest thing on the planet, right? You know? <laughs> but at the same time, it's also one of the most beautiful things to do. And if you can get good at it and you enjoy doing it, it's something that is actually a necessity. I mean, musicals are, are have never died out, and you, they go through different things. We we do have our you know, you know, times where the time is right to explore deeper subjects. And then we have times where all anybody wants is Mamma Mia, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it's not disparage that show at all, which is a very fun put together show, by the way. 
So, uh, you know, it, I, don't, I think the colleges are important and the universities are important. I advocate for that. But again, I'm not a performer, so I would like to hear from Travis what he feels about it. I am. I'm very mixed about the subject, honestly. Um, you know, I thought so I, you I would did, be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I did go to UCLA, uh, but I got a BA in acting and playwriting. I double majored there, and my college experience was a little different than a lot of people who I went to school with because before UCLA, I actually had gone to AMDA in Los Angeles. Oh yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I I studied there. You know, the hardcore like nine to five conservatory type training stuff. And I really feel like there I learned how to sing. I don't think I really knew how before. And I would say that if I walked out of that place with one tangible thing, it was that. And it was also the knowledge that I need more than just a conservatory training to be successful in this industry. My first teacher there was Danny Gerwin, uh, still is a, a, a nice friend and really took me aside at one point and said, hey, you should go to a real college. And I was mm. like, oh, okay, cool. Oh, wow. So he and his um, partner at the time, Hank, helped me uh, apply to colleges because I was on my own. First person in my family to go to college. So I was sort of navigating all this stuff by myself in Los Angeles at 17, 18 years old, right? So I got into UCLA and it was one of the only schools I got into. I got rejected from a whole bunch of them. And I was like, okay, well, if I got into UCLA, but not you know, Fullerton, Cal State Fullerton, like something's You're pointing okay. me in that direction, right? So I, so I went to UCLA and I realized that I loved, I loved UCLA. I loved the school. I loved all the experiences. I was in a fraternity. I feel like that really helped shape who I became, who I am. Um, That's cool. I learned a lot from a lot of different people and I took a lot of crazy classes that I never thought I would be interested in. And I started writing when I was at UCLA. And I really, really fell in love with that, almost more so than performing. And it's sort of been my saving grace because as an actor, I mean, we go through so many lulls in terms of employment and in between jobs. And when I first graduated, it was about a year and a half before I booked anything. And mm -hmm. I was writing that whole time. I was writing plays and, and screenplays and shorts and all these things. And my time at UCLA taught me how to be multifaceted and how to be more than just a performer. Because I think nowadays you have to be. It's really rare that you are just an actor, just a singer, just a dancer. You have to be a multi-hyphenate in a way, right? Um, so I, I definitely encountered a lot of the, a lot of the bullshit at, at UCLA and a lot of the teachers that thought that it was their way or the highway. And you know, I'll, I'll distinctly remember one of my teachers asking my opinion about an exercise we had done in class. My opinion, okay? And I explained to her how I was feeling about this, this exercise. And she looked at me and she was like, no, that's not right. And I was like, wait, what? This is how we're feeling about this things, This is an right? opinion. This is an opinion. This is how it felt for me. I think at that point I was sort of like, okay, this, that's bullshit, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I have had tons of great teachers you know, but I've also had a couple of not so great ones. So that's why I say I'm a little mixed on the on the, ed, you know, the higher education in terms of theater. I think if you're going to be doing it, you got to be in a program that encourages you to do stuff, to create stuff all the time, all different mm -hmm. shapes and forms and schools that punish students for doing outside shows like that never sat well with me. I had booked my first professional job right after See What I Want to See. And I was doing a musical at the Geffen, so right down the street from UCLA. And all of my 
professors were like, oh, well, you got to keep up with your classwork and you got to do this. I'm like, I'm working. I'm a working actor right now for 10 weeks or whatever. And you're still giving me shit about this? What's the point of being in this program then if you're not going to encourage and support something like this? Yeah. So that's my two cents on college education. But that being said, too, I had an incredible time. I created a lot of great stuff. I met some lifelong friends. Everyone in in our cast of See What I Want to See were still incredibly close. I sent them a text this morning that said, hey, guess who I'm having a call with today? Um, most of them, uh, Hunter, Angelica, Rachel, and Jordan live in New York. Nick Tubbs and I live out here in L.A. And, no uh, way. Nick Tubbs? I didn't know that he was in that, too. Nick Tubbs played uh, the Mark Goodish part. Oh, how cool. So, you know, lifelong bonds and friendships from this show that I didn't know anybody, you know, and, and all four of them had, had known each other. And if it wasn't for UCLA and the crazy students who were so, you know, like, let's make something. Let's put on a show in this ancient building that's been on campus since the 20s you know we converted this old i don't even know what it was it was like a a, a ballroom basically that we had we built this little proscenium you know and it was very makeshift college production you know the best kind uh, the best kind of theater yeah uh, uh there was a young director here in town for uh, i think it was the director's guild or fellowships and uh he wanted to do hello again with five characters and I thought, hmm, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? And then he told me, and I, I saw the production, and I, and I was pleasantly surprised and engaged by so much of it. And I thought it was intelligent, and I thought that experiment worked for me. And I thought, cool. very good. Good choices. It did not do any harm to the piece whatsoever. In fact, it enlightened a couple things in the piece, which, which, which I was very happy about. So that was really lovely That's to see. That, that's funny that you bring that up, you know, sh- shrinking a cast size of your shows. Has anyone ever come to you and said they want to do See What I Want to See with 12 people? No. <laughs> to no. Do, well, you know, to do the, the core five in Act 1, the core five in Act 2, and then two separate actors for Kessa and Marito. Oh, I guess oh, you could. interesting. I, I guess you could do that. I guess, I mean, I, I don't think I would have uh, an objection to that at all. I mean, would I go yeah. see it? I, I, I find there's something, I think there's something... <laughs> more fun for the actors in the in the piece to have those double roles because there's certain shadings that are echoed in each oh, one yeah. of those uh, pieces that bring up a little resonance of uh, uh, you know like the reporter there's a touch of the thief in him you know what I mean uh, it, it's a little the touch of in the janitor a little touch of there a little touch of the medium in Aunt Monty I, I like to call them echoes of that in each one of those characters. And I think, I just think for the actor, it's really fun to transform and have that, you know, (laughs) and the actress, for instance, the actress in the second part of in glory day, she's quite the actress in the first act in, in rush, our showman. Uh, she's quite a little liar, a total liar. Or she seems to be, but she's, then she becomes an actual actress in the, in, in, in the second piece. So, that that resonance is important to the piece, I think, too. Not just in terms of text, but in terms of music as well. When you were writing See What I Want to See, did you always know that you were looking for three stories? How did you decide to narrow it down to these three stories of his? I uh, wrote Our Showman many years before, and I wrote it as a short little piece. I don't know why, but only because I wanted to do it. Uh hmm because it intrigued me as a, as, a, as a property for a musical idea. It running only, I don't know, how long, Travis, did the first act run generally? Uh, 
maybe maybe 45 minutes maybe at the most That's yeah right. which is which is not an evening in the theater so uh right. i put i put it away for quite a number of years because uh, i didn't know what to do i knew that I would have to find a second act for it if I needed to, but why would I expand it any longer than it needed to be? Did it make any sense to me? I felt that I had said what I needed to say in my adaptation of the Rashomon story, or in actually based on In the Grove, um, and, mm-hmm. and the by title yeah, by Akutagawa. and the title is taken from another story, uh, Rashomon, which was the title of the movie referenced in the piece that that short story was turned into a film in the 1950s it was one of the first japanese films that really gained a huge critical mm. uh, attention beautiful, beautiful and um movie. i had never seen it before the director kurosawa yes one of his very first right it is uh, still fresh as a daisy so artistic so interesting very like Orson Welles kind of mm-hmm. Citizen Kane-ish in terms mm-hmm. of its visual uh, language. I highly recommend it, but it is the story of a murder happening in this case in this in the in the short story in a grove, and that as we're trying to figure out the truth of what happened, every single person involved has a different perspective, and it's left very open ended. I I believe as I studied the film the actors were coming to the director and saying, did I do it? Like, like, tell me what actually happened. And the director was like, I don't know. <laughs> you just got to play the truth of what your character believes is the truth mm-hmm. and leave it at that. And that's essentially what you did with, with the first act uh, yes, of, yeah. of this musical. Yeah. There's one sort of hint, though, that I've always, I've never forgotten about. The, what, what, the, what? Act, the act one finale and it would be really hard to know this by just by listening to the soundtrack because you can barely pick it out. But the truth, the truth, the truth. The thief is the only one singing a different note. It's like some interval above what everyone else is singing. And uh, and I was like, well, then I think the thief is the one who did it. Or That's fascinating. Or the only one that didn't do it. Oh, that's true. Yep, that's true. You know? Hot dang. The, the real truth is, and I believe that this is also true, I believe, in, in the Grove, the janitor, in, in this case, is actually the person that kills the husband because he's alive when he finds him with the knife in him still. And he pulls the knife oh, out. Oh, and then he pulls it out. And the man bleeds to death. And that's how he and bleeds that's, out. Yes. The choreographer, Jonathan Butterall, would always say, can we have a big electronical zap at the end of Act 1? To, sh- to demonstrate that the janitor was electrocuted, he was sent to jail and electrocuted. That's like, I, uh, no, no. <laughs> Short it's, answer, no. It's like, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, but if the audience wants something on the nose, I'm going, no, the whole point is we have a whole no. no. But the fact is the janitor did, by accident or whatever you want to believe in, came upon the body and pulled the knife out, letting the man bleed to death, unfortunately. And then, then went away, right. you know, on top of it all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Best yeah, not yeah. to get involved, you know. Best not to get involved, exactly right. So, Question, Central Park plays a big part in both these in both of these stories. They're the setting for the both pieces, yeah. In fact, the, the same little section is, is sung in both pieces, which is uh, Central, Central Park, Park Jungle, jun- Land. Jungle Land. There you go. Mm-hmm. You're kind of painting it as this uh, magical landscape in the middle of a city. Is that mm-hmm. what you experience as a New Yorker? Or Yeah, I think I think anybody who, yeah. What does the priest say, I think, in the show? It's, it's Central Park. It's so central. 
you know, so central. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think he says that exactly. in the show. But it is, it's true. It's, it's yeah. just, I think it is the heart of the city and uh, gives uh, the city heart because uh, it mm. it's beautiful. And, you know, when we've been dealing with the COVID here during those unspeakably cruel days that our city went through, um, I mean, it's very hard to wrap your head around the fact that 900 people were dying around you. Everything, One in every 350 residents in New York City has died of COVID. Um, and that's right. Um, but the park, but the park was there and you could go to the park, uh, and have a picnic Ugh. and walk outside, kept your mask on, but at least there was that when I mean, you couldn't go anywhere else, you couldn't go on the subway, couldn't go to the, any place, couldn't go into buildings even. So it is magical wow. because it's, you know, New York city pain in the ass as it is. <laughs> greatest, greatest city in the world. What's really great about each of these characters, and maybe you can speak a little to this, their confessions, essentially what they're telling the police as, e- as, they, as each of their story unfolds, including the actual murder victim by way of a psychic, everybody is revealing their side of the story, but it's always shaded very interestingly from a musical sense. For example... When the psychic is relaying the message through the the mm-hmm. deceased husband, we get a glimpse of the wife, and she has had it with basically being ignored, being used, being controlled by this husband. Mm-hmm. His his side of the story is that she killed him because he was controlling her. But the way that the wife expresses herself in song is so honest, in many ways it's as if the husband is confessing that he was, in fact, controlling, that he was, in fact, doing all of these things to her. And if that is the truth, he deserved it. Mm-hmm. You know? Otherwise, it would be shaded differently, I right. feel. I think, well, that's a proper assessment of it all. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause it, is the, it is the husband's story. But, but, Jeff, it's told through a third party. So who knows what, what the medium feels? Fair enough. You know, it's that, it's that tag that every character has, which is I only told you the truth. truth like, right. And you're like, oh, mm-hmm. OK. Yeah. Well, I'm that's sure you truth. did. That's your, that's your truth. Yeah. And again, it's being told through the third party, through the medium and whether or not she had something to add to this this mm-hmm. story. Because she seems like as a woman, ju- as, as, a, a, as a woman and absolutely with uh, in her own background. So that's a little bit of something that's going on there. You can't take anybody sure. at face value is, 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 is the point. Now, the cast album from the production at the Public Theater, which was off-Broadway and ran for, I believe, three months in 2005, had an incredible cast, including Adina Menzel, who had, at this point, just won a Tony Award for Wicked. Um, Aaron Lohr played the role that Travis played. Who she married Uh, later. Who they ended up getting married? Funny enough, too, Aaron Lohr. Aaron Lohr actually went to UCLA. Yes, he did. No way. Yeah. Yep. We had the same acting coach. They, they were both married at the same time uh, during See What I Want to See, but I, I would always go, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Something's going someone, on here. Someone always hooks up on one of my shows. Maybe that's true with every show or something like that. But it it's that 5-4. It's the 5-4 mm-hmm. sex music. That's it. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they were hot together. They were really hot together on stage. Oh, I'm sure. Yep. And, uh, Aaron Lore's always been a cutie patootie ever since the film Newsies. For those uh, who may not know, he's uh, for a Buckeye Might in the original film of Newsies. And I love Idina. You know, she's just a 
a sweetheart. I mean, just a, a darling, darling, darling woman. Audra, Audra did it for us in Williamstown, though. Audra McDonald actually was the original. Um, this is what was so fascinating about it. Audra got a, a, a major TV series, I believe, and uh, that's what it was. Was it? She got a show. So she, Private practice. Yeah, mm-hmm. she couldn't do our, our scheduled uh, run. But Adina was free to do it and willingly took it on. And I did not have to change a no. Now, you can't think of two different voices wow. in the world, right? Seriously. Then, Absolutely. But that's, you know, that... But, two of the most powerful voices that we have in the musical theater and distinctive voices, you know, uh, that we have right now. So it was kind of like, yeah. I go, wow, I didn't have to change the key. And there's that, cause Idina's, yeah. you know, palette is just like, Oh my God, that woman has the, you know, this range that's out of control and, and does it right. Yeah. You know what I mean? She's not straining, you know, she doesn't know how to do it. And, uh, Thank God, because it cost us a fortune in reorchestrating and et cetera, et cetera. You know, so. of course, of so course. Say, thank you, Idina. You saved us money. I I remember reading somewhere that Michael C. Hall did a production of this. Yeah, in, at Williamstown. The, uh, yes, and then he got Dexter. Williamstown. Okay, with Audra. Yeah, I remember reading that, but I was a huge fan of Dexter at the time too, and I was like, oh, well, yes, that's he kind got of the awesome. TV series. Nice. He was wonderful in it too, just really lovely. He was like he played was playing Dexter when he was doing the thief anyway, you know. Yeah. You know, that, that, that. <laughs> I can't I can't do his eyes, but you know, just like you know, he does that thing, you know, <laughs> with the Dexter eyes. And Mary Testa. Yeah. Oh yeah, yes, my Miss Testa. Mary Testa. A national treasure, as yeah, far as I'm concerned. Great, great guy. And an incredible interpreter of your stuff. Yeah, she's a genius. She was like one of the few white gals in, in Marie Christine. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and uh, you know, she'd always been, she'd been doing a lot of comedy roles, and I wrote that role for her and Marie Christine to really show the woman has just, you can't be a great comedian as Mary is without being a really fucking brilliant actress. And that she sure. is. Um, and that was another sad thing, too, because we were uh, getting together a new show for, that I wrote for her in New York, too, because of, but because of the COVID, we've had to put it on hold, obviously, for quite a while, I, I would imagine. Oh, wow. uh, it was a, a piece called um, Beautiful Jolie Gabor, Her Fabulous Three Daughters, and Always the Happiness is Life. And it's based on so much. <laughs> and it's based on the, the life st- story of um, Jolie Gabor, who is the mother of Zsa Zsa. Mm-hmm. Ava and Magda Gabor, the three Gabor sisters. Wow. It's, and Marie Te- uh, Mary Testa's. She's playing Jolie Gabor, the mother of the three daughters. And it's insane. Just insane. I can't. And she's, she's fucking wacky and brilliant in it. Just brilliant. You know? Oh my gosh, I can't wait. Yeah. It's a lot of wigs. A lot of wigs and moves <laughs> and, and caftans. The and wig budget is just. Totally, totally <laughs> 70s. It's my total 70s camp show. So, that's fantastic another oh one gosh, of those things please. that threw me into a spiral of grief you know <laughs> things got sure. against us. oh I wanted to be in the room with her nothing's more of joyous than being in a room with those people like Mark is an old time friend uh, Luba Mason Mary Testa Audra you know these wonderful people that I, I just adore working with and, and being in the room with Isabel Santiago I love her so much too it's just so great when we have a chance to all be in the room and I love writing for these people I mean, I love being able to write roles for them and be able to say, hey, kids, you want to come and play with Uncle Michael John, you know, and, and to have them always say, yes, even if it doesn't pay the money, they're 
we know, we know each other's language. You know, we know how to speak the language and they know how to deliver the goods. And when you say <laughs> you, you can't, Jeff, when you say you can't learn my stuff in two weeks, well, you probably can if you've done one of my shows because you've learned the language. It becomes You learn the language, totally. After, after you do a few of them, you go, oh, oh that's right. Yeah. And I always say to actors, just sing the wrong note. It's probably going to be the right one. <laughs> there's some crunchy stuff and see what i want to see i was I, just listening to it again and it's like oh my god it's so crunchy yeah it's I, great i it? love the i love the rising up oh that's yeah one of my oh, favorite oh. Things. yeah that's and you guys it's difficult pretty, difficult song it is it is but it, yeah. but it doesn't sound it to the ear it's very simple but it's it's hard it's hard and the yeah. glory day is hard but you know it's it's tricky when you're writing for five people and you want to create the sound of a hundred people so you have to do things that, on the face value, sounds simple, but there's a lot of intricacy going on in it, so that you can create that sound like Glory Day needed to have. It's funny when you listen to the cast recording, and, and even when you guys did performed it at UCLA, it, it sounded like 100 people doing it, you know, because you're just singing wow. full out, boom, boom, and, and you are clashing a lot and stuff, but it still makes oh, it sound, yeah. sound like many, many people as opposed to just five people belting at the top of their lungs. <laughs> <laughs> The last thing that I wanted to touch on in terms of the show is... Have we been talking this long? Oh, my God. Wow. What did I tell you, yeah, Michael you, John? You, you kept thinking there'd be nothing to talk about, but uh, here I we did. are. It's, it's a complex show. Yeah. But uh, the one I wanted to talk about was uh, Kessa and Marito. Because oh. while, while you have Our Shaman, first act, and the Glory Day, second act, before each of those, you have... Uh, another story Mm -hmm. um and how did you decide for that to be kind of like a prologue for each act when i began to commit by the way the director of of see what i want to see the original production is an old colleague of my wonderful friend ted sperling and if it weren't for ted i don't think see what i want to see would have been written at all because he had fallen in love with you very originally he'd seen our showman the short little reading that we did at one time at lincoln center and he would always remind me, go, you know what, I, will, I want to try directing someday, and I would love to get my hands on that piece. And finally he came to me one time again, and I said, you know what, it is a good idea, it's time It's time to look at that piece again. And so literally, because of Ted Sperling, I, I, I dove in and wrote the rest of the piece. I found Case of Marita while I was in Japan working on that musical, and I had it translated to me. And what I've been doing also, too, was studying Japanese art, particularly screen paintings. And I realized I wanted to architecturally designed the book as though it were a Japanese screen painting. Now, in Japanese screen paintings, you will have um, uh, one screen and it will have a frog sitting on a lily pad. The next screen will be a samurai being born. The third screen will be a frog and a stork now joining him on the lily pad. And then you'll see a great deed on the next panel of the samurai in action. The next panel... You'll see the the frog gone from the lily pad and the stork flying away, full, belly full. (laughs) And the final panel will be the death of the samurai. Point was that you would be up close and you would see each thing up front, right? And you could go each panel, each panel, each panel. But the artist wants you to also take 10 steps back and suddenly you, you see the whole, start seeing the whole totality of the thing. Then you take, and if you were to take 30 steps back, 100 steps back, step back a mile, you begin to see what God sees from his point of view, that all things, life, death, everything is all one. And that's, you know, the, the view from the God's point of view. 
And that's what the artist is trying to stress with that. So that fascinated me. I thought that was really quite interesting. Also, too, on some of these paintings, um, Japanese screen paintings, there's something in the back, sometimes painted stuff on the back, which the artist believed you could sense by looking at the painting out front, that our perceptions are more than what they are. So when I put wow. together Case and Marita, I had that idea in mind of the screen and the screen and the screen and the screen with it also. That's, that's why I divided up both Kesa and Marita. Kesa is sings about a lover that is going, she's going to meet that night, but he's put her in such a state of mind that she feels that she is God and she can no longer feel anything anymore. She's become so distanced from her body and, and emotion. This is what God feels like, is what she says in the song. So what she's going to do is she's going to tell her husband and he's going to kill her lover. <laughs> so, so she can get so back like, to be, to get back to her. It, yeah. Marita... Right. Who starts off the second act, though, says, I'm going to meet my lover tonight, Kesa, and i got to break this off because I feel like God. I'm not feeling anything anymore. So uh, I'm going to kill her. <laughs> so we don't know who kills whom, you know, at the end. Again, yeah, an, every single time the scene ends before we see. It's right before right. one of them does the other one. So you never know what happens to either one of their stories. And that's, that's based on the, the Akutagawa short story. You don't know. It's just two monologues. One thing I love about both of those songs is the slight lyric differences from mm-hmm. one to the next. Like it's so effective because then you're in the, the you're in the perspective of these characters, right? Right. Yeah, it's not just the same song. It is not the same song. They confuse the audience, and I love that. It conf- I, that's exactly what I want. I want to yeah. really throw. I love throwing them off. <laughs> I love. Throwing yeah, them you off. get people. You get people afterwards that are like, what the hell was that about? What was that for? Is that involved in this play? I don't know. But, but it's what makes it so unusual, I think. I think if you just exactly. did, if you just did our showman and Gloria Day just as is, and you didn't have the case of Marita in there, and it was suggested to me over and over again, I think even someone mentioned it to me that one of the producers at the public during, when, during previous said, said, do you really need those two pieces there? Because it kind of confuses the audience. I'm going, that's the point. <laughs> the point is yeah. not, to, not to confuse them, but it's to, to throw them off their game you know to keep them in a state of vulnerability it's not to be cruel and to be confusing it's to to make people vulnerable so that they're open to crying open to laughter you know always make them laugh and then they'll cry so right. keep them vulnerable keep them on the guessing game you know you want your audience to feel smart you don't ever want to make to make them feel dumb so that's why when Rito comes back in at the top of the second act a lot of the people go oh oh Oh, mm-hmm. okay. We get. Oh, we get that now. Okay, we get it. Because they don't know what it's doing in the beginning. They don't know who she was. She didn't come back in through the rest of the story. And they're all like, "Where are?" Nope. But Marito starts the whole second act, and the audience goes, "All right." So they feel a little bit smart, and if they pick up on it, some are just going to naturally be dumb, and we just have to accept that as writers. Yep. <laughs> I'll take your money, it- and you may come to the theater. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your business. Thank you for your Please business. buy a concession on the way out. Yeah, yeah. Buy the t-shirt. <laughs> I also think that In Case and Marito is one of the most beautiful things musically in the, in the piece. I wrote it while I was in Japan, actually. I wrote that number in Japan. Really? Yeah. There's the kind of, I don't even really want to call it a bridge because your songs aren't constructed that predictably. But um, all of a sudden it starts going... 
Watch myself outside. I watch my yes, you know exactly and, what I'm talking about. I watch myself outside a, myself. There's a triplet thing going on underneath that audio. Yeah, there's something really beautiful going on in the music. It feels like it it it's gaining momentum because these characters are making love. So there's something true to that moment. It's, it's you become untethered. The characters become yes, untethered. exactly. I, yeah, and then lyrically, which is so cool. This is what the character is saying. This is Marito in the second act. I watch myself outside myself sleep and breathe and wake and cry, sweat and shit and screw and lie. My God, it's hell to be God. <laughs> to have like the most beautiful thing creating momentum. And then that is what lyrically is going like so complex. And I love it. No. <laughs> I have nothing else to say. It's 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 called it's called playing with dichotomy, you know what I mean? Be be make yeah. the, make the ugly beautiful, make the beautiful ugly. You know, uh, that's yeah. that's that's a key to the fashion industry, you know what I mean? And, and it's also true with music too, you know, some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard in my life, you know, um is some of the the most sad music and and, and some of Mozart's Requiem or you know, some of the great French writers uh very ugly moment could be the most beautiful moment. I feel like I've just sat through a masterclass. Thank you very much. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> mean to lecture. Really happy. <laughs> Yoda <laughs> no, means no, not to like, lecture. <laughs> truly, though, in in the best sense that I feel like we got one-on-one time with you to just hear about your experience. And from that, we get wisdom. So thank oh. you for being willing to do it's it. It's been a pleasure. Us, thank us you. youngins. Yeah. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover here on A Musical Theater Podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at amusicalpodcast. Um, and while you're at it, go to our T Public store because we've got lots of designs there that you can put on an array of products that celebrate some of our favorite moments of our show, past and present. Travis, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? Instagram. Probably the best uh, at Travis. What is it? I don't even remember. <laughs> at Travis Leland twenty or something like that. Um, Fantastic! You'll be yeah, tagged in, one, in our post for sure. Yeah. Oh, and I just sent you both a picture <gasps> of <laughs> of of me and Michael John after our production in two thousand and nine. So eleven years ago, this was. Yes. So enjoy, enjoy those. We're definitely posting that one. Uh, Michael John, is there anything that you want to plug or any way that we can follow you and what you're up to? Oh, my God, I look horrifying in those pictures. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm so fat. Oh, my God. No. Oh, my God. Come on. No, Grandpa Grandpa has nothing to say. But uh, you'll you'll be posted. I'm sure you'll find out. You know, we just have to wish and hope that, uh, you know, uh, our artists, our people who are out of work um, can – continue to survive and hang in there for as long as they can hang in there. You know, I feel my heart is breaking for my actors and for my uh, musicians, you know, they, and uh, it's very difficult uh, for them right now. And, but you know, they're in my heart and my soul and uh, we will be back on stage soon enough. It's, it will happen. Fantastic. Until that day, everybody out there, keep looking out for miracles. Bye. Bye.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.